Acts chapter 4, folks, page 1095. It would be great if you had that open in front of you because I'll be pointing bits and pieces of that passage out to you as we go. Um, Let me pray. Father God, we're trying to learn these days what it is to be a community that's filled with your Spirit. Lord, this is one of those times when we need to know your Spirit's presence with us when we come to your Word. You gave your Spirit to men, inspiring them to record your Word for us. And in the same way that they relied on your Spirit, we rely on him too just now for the interpretation a good understanding, and then a moving of our hearts. So, Spirit of God, come and help us as we think about these, these words today. Amen. In a major series like this, it's, it's worth trying to keep a handle on the storyline, the thread so far. So, in 30 seconds, I want to try and tell you what's happened in Acts so far. You can flick with me from Acts 1 through just to the the wee headings in the NIV would probably be a good synopsis for you, would remind you of some of the things we've thought about. So in Acts chapter 1, the key thing that's going on is that the the risen Lord Jesus promises his disciples, I'm going to send my spirit. In Acts chapter 2, the promised spirit comes, uh, and that's the, the famous event of the early church that we call Pentecost. And by the time we get towards the end of Acts 2, uh, we deal with what we call the Spirit-filled community. So that short chunk, beginning at verse 42 of Acts 2, that was our third sermon in the series. And then last week, uh, from chapter 3, Richie was sharing with us uh, about the the Spirit-filled church is a church that repents all the time. Uh, Repentance is something that seemed to be happening when God's Spirit fell on his people. So this morning we're going to look together at Acts 4, and the title I came up with, it, it started as a working title at the start of the week, and I was hoping it would get better, and it didn't. So here it is. The, the Spirit-filled church knows who's boss. That's really what we're going to be thinking about for a second this morning. If you were here last week, or you've had a chance to look at chapter 3, you'll know how Luke tells us there in the opening verses about Peter healing a lame man uh, at the gate of the temple. And he, he tells us first about the healing that happened. Then he tells us about Peter's explanation of that event. And in verse 16 of chapter 3, Peter tells us that it's by faith in the name of Jesus that this man was made strong. Billy pointed out the, the recurring theme of the name of Jesus Um, in chapter 4, but it's already there in chapter 3. And when we talk about the name, we're talking about in whose whose authority are are people acting, in whose authority are these miracles being done. The passage we've read this morning, uh, uh, you may have realized, is just a continuation of the same incident, really. Um, We're still dealing with the same incident, only now there's a new bunch of characters have arrived on the scene. And Luke tells us about them in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 4. And he tells us that they're not a bit pleased. The priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees came to Peter and John while they were speaking. 
they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So, guys standing on street corners preaching and all of a sudden the whole hierarchy in Jerusalem is in uproar. What's the big deal? Surely there were people standing around in Jerusalem saying stuff on street corners all the time. I think we need to, to pause for a second and he, here and see what, what's going on here. What's, what is the big deal? So what we have here is, if, if you flick down, you have the city center, you have the city leadership of Jerusalem, the, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law, Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, all these guys called together in verses 5 to 6. This is like calling an emergency meeting of Stormont. It's the leadership of the city. They have to come together because this thing that's happening is so serious. So we know from reading this story that it's a big deal, but we don't know why. Why is this a big deal? Well, first thing... First reason it's a big deal is because of the number of people it was impacting. If you flick back to chapter 2, verse 41, just at the end of the Pentecost account, we're told there that 3,000 people um, joined the Jesus movement that day after hearing Peter preach. And then by the time you get to verse 4 of our chapter, we're told again that many heard the message, believed, And the number of men grew to about 5,000. 3,000 very suddenly, 5,000. This is is moving, and it's it's a big number of people. So this Jesus movement's having a real, a, a very significant impact on Jerusalem and the area around it. But even then, what difference does it make? What does it matter if 5,000 people have heard somebody say some stuff and they believe it? Jesus of Nazareth, they're believing that he really had been raised from the dead, that he was the Jewish Messiah. Why would that matter if they believed this? Well, to to begin to understand why that might be important, we need need to think about the context in which this is happening. This is happening in the the Roman Empire, ruled by Caesar's And these Caesars claimed that they were gods, that they had been sent to earth to renew creation, to make the world what it should be. So Caesar Augustus, he's the guy whom we know of famously from the time of Jesus' birth. He believed that he was the son of God, that he had come to earth as God incarnate, that he was the prince of peace who had come to restore all of creation. He even started the 12-day celebration for his birth, And he called it Advent. Does it sound familiar? These priests of the Caesars, they offered sacrifices and incense to get rid of people's guilt. And one of their popular slogans was this. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved other than that of Caesar. Another phrase they loved. Caesar is Lord. So throughout the Roman Empire, you have Caesars calling people to worship them as the divine saviors of humankind. And and whenever a city signed up to to that way of life, 
it was given a, a name. And the Greek name it was given was Ecclesia. So I'm telling you that a little bit so we know what, what the culture is, what the environment is where, where these events of Acts 4 are taking place. It's into this context that this Jesus movement is being born, that a bunch of people are gathering around a Jewish rabbi and they're, they're saying that though he'd been crucified by Rome, he'd risen from the dead and that he had appeared to them. And they started saying things like, Jesus is Lord. That very soon became one of their favorite slogans. Do you see why this might be a big deal for these Jewish religious leaders? They've been delegated the responsibility from Rome. You run the place. Make sure it it shapes up to the requirements of the Roman Empire. But if we have 5,000 people standing around in Jerusalem saying Jesus is Lord, where does that leave Caesar? If they're claiming that Jesus is Lord, then Caesar isn't. And what did these early Christians call their gatherings? They called them ecclesia. That's the word that translates from the New Testament Greek into our English as church. Every time you see church in the New Testament, read ecclesia, the community gathered around Jesus as Lord. So in contrast to the the wide network of ecclesias all over the Roman Empire signed up to say that Caesar is Lord, there's a new thing starting here. People gathering around Jesus of Nazareth saying he is Lord. Another of their favorite slogans, these Christians, in our passage, verse 12, there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. See what Peter's doing? He is taking the language of the empire, that political language about the lordship of Caesar, and he's reinterpreting it, and he's saying, no, there's only one Lord. It's not Caesar. It's Jesus Christ. See, these Caesars, they claimed that they were going to be the ones who would look after the people. They save everyone. They make the world a better place. In the Roman Empire, Caesar is boss. He orders society. He puts food on the table. He provides for people. He brings peace. But these early Christians, they see it differently. God's Spirit in them was helping them to see it differently. Look at verse 8. Because before Peter begins to say what he says to the religious leaders, before we're told what his defense was, we're told that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus and the Spirit of Jesus' Father is on him. So he's seeing the world through God's eyes and he speaks God's words. So for Peter, in a world that thinks that Caesar's boss... He knows better, and he sees more, and he says differently. Folks, the Spirit-filled church today still knows that Caesar isn't boss. We don't call him Caesar anymore. 
we call him names like David Cameron, Nick Clegg, Ed Miliband and co, the kind of guys who are charged with giving responsibility, giving leadership to uh, the UK. Despite appearances, they are not in control. They are not boss. Neither are Peter and Martin up on the hill. They are not boss either. We know that in the end, when push comes to shove, there's only one Lord, and his name's Jesus Christ. Because we know that Jesus is boss, that, that means a lot of different things. It means that our boss isn't the boss. That might be something that Ruth's been having to think about. Our boss isn't the boss. Jerry Marshall, general manager of the Transformation Business Network, tells of a time when he was presenting on entrepreneurial leadership to a secular business group. And they asked him the question, knowing that he was a Christian. They said, does your faith make any difference? Does it mean that you take more risk in your work? He says he thought about it for a second, and he said, my answer was a resounding yes. I have a great boss. Unlike the average CEO who had been described recently in the Financial Times as vain, boring bullies, God is always there, encouraging and stretching me. With him, even when I make a mistake, I know he still loves me and supports me, and he'll travel on with me from wherever I've ended up. So our prime ministers and first ministers aren't the boss. Our bosses aren't the boss. But Jesus' rule, I don't think, is just over these people. It's, it's not just over the, the personal. It's also, I think, over the impersonal powers and agendas that dominate our society. So whenever we hear the consumer lie that tells us that we're worthless or that we're unattractive because we haven't invested in this or that lucrative or desirable brand. Spirit-filled people say no. I don't owe any allegiance to you. You see, Jesus is Lord. My worth is found in him. He's paid the greatest price ever for me because he loves me. His love for me will never tire. Because Jesus is Lord, it means that whenever we feel the pressure to dance the, to the pervasive middle-class agenda, this world where kids are defined by AQE scores and where they're pushed relentlessly for success at all costs, we say, no, no. That's not, that's not our story. That's not my family's story. We don't depend on our work and our achievements for our sense of self-worth because the work of Jesus Christ and his achievements on our behalf are what ultimately and deeply and finally define us. And that frees us then to move through life with with freedom, 
and with joy. You see, the Spirit-filled church knows that Jesus is boss. And I think that's every bit as revolutionary an idea today as it was in AD 30, Jerusalem. Back to Acts chapter 4. It's a chapter that I think talks about the clash in the end of two worldviews. A world where Caesar's held up as boss and where spirit-filled Christians are starting to say, no, um, there's another boss. And this problem isn't going to go away. Once this line is drawn, it's not easily going to disappear. It's a problem for the Jewish religious leaders, and Luke tells us about their struggles there in verses 13 to 22. Their, Their main problem is this guy who's been healed because he's, he's there, he's irrefutable evidence of the power. There's some sort of power at work here. They can't refute it because there are people in the city who know this guy. They know that he'd been crippled all his life, and they know that he's not crippled now, so there's a problem here. And the Jewish leaders don't know what to do about it. You can see them struggle with it. Verse 16, what are we going to do with these men, these followers of Jesus? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have done an outstanding miracle and we can't deny it. So they decide that the best thing they can do is just shut these guys up. Tell them, that's it. No more chat about Jesus Christ. That's it. Draw the line. No more Jesus talk. Look at Peter and John's response when they're told to shut up. Verse 19. They're talking here to religious leaders. After all, these are the guys who are supposed to be loyal to God. And here's what they say. Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot stop talking about what we've heard and what we've seen. Do you see what Peter's saying? He says, listen, we know how the world works. We know that there's a a party line that Caesar is God. We, we get all that. We know we're supposed to give our ultimate allegiance to him. But we can't. And we're not going to. We're casualties of the gospel. Jesus Christ, he's got us. We can't do anything else than to live for him, declare our allegiance to him. We can't and we won't do anything else. He's won our hearts. He's our boss. That's the first and main point um, I wanted to draw out of our passage. And very quickly, a second point. If if the Spirit-filled church knows who's boss, then we want to say as well that the Spirit-filled church prays. And we want to notice that in the the next few verses, which we didn't read in chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. These early disciples in Jerusalem are under pressure now because they're on a collision course with the authorities. And this is is not a, a friendly regime if you get on the wrong side of it. They know that a matter of weeks or months before Jesus had been crucified. So what did they do knowing 
the point they've come to and what lies ahead. Verse 23. They get together with their community and they pray. And since they know his boss, it's the most natural thing in the world for them to do this. They want to talk to the boss and let the boss make the boss make their business the boss's business. Their prayer is quite interesting, actually. Uh, sometimes the Old Testament quotations in a story can throw us a wee bit, uh, but I think this one's this one's interesting. They begin by saying a couple of things to God, a couple of truths, things about how they see the world. First, in verse twenty-four, they say, "We know that you're a boss." So they call him Lord. Well, that means boss clearly, doesn't it? And sovereign means a ruler over all other rulers. So they begin by saying, you are boss, the Lord who reigns over us. And the second thing they tell God, verses 25 to 28, we know that these other guys aren't boss. And they talk about the time. Uh, Just a few weeks ago there, where Herod's and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles. That's the Roman authorities, by the way, in that case. And the people of Israel, so the Jewish leaders, the Jewish leaders, the Roman leaders, they're all together. They're all conspiring against your holy servant, Jesus. And in this prayer, they quote Psalm 2. Psalm 2, by the way, is the classic Jewish prayer where they say that our God is boss and no one else is. Turn with me for just a second, page 543. Psalm 2. Psalm 2 on page 543. The psalmist begins with a question. He says, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of earth take their stand and the rulers gather against the Lord, against his anointed one. See, when they're quoting that, they're, they're making a connection. They're saying that what happened when the Jewish and Roman leaders conspired to, to kill Jesus, they're in, in Psalm 2 territory. They're conspiring against God, against his anointed one. And then in verse 4, the psalmist tells us, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. So the politicians and our bully boy bosses and whoever else is is oppressing, they, they do their stuff. They make their schemes and the Lord laughs. He towers over them in authority and power and might. If you come back to Acts 4, you'll see that the early believers, the early disciples, they're praying a prayer and they're effectively saying, these guys who stand against you, they aren't boss. Lord, you are boss. We recognize that all these leaders of our time, they aren't boss. We know that your son, Jesus Christ, is the only true boss. And look at verse 29. This is how it winds up. They, because they know that God is boss, ask for his help. 
They say, now, Lord, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Let me finish. We have said that the Spirit-filled church knows who's boss. And we've said now that the Spirit-filled church prays. Those two things, of course, aren't separate ideas. They're not unrelated. They're cause and effect. It's because the the Spirit-filled church prays because it knows who's boss. The early Christians, they knew that Jesus was Lord. They'd been with him. They'd seen him rise from the dead. So nothing was going to stop them living for him. And they wanted to talk to him. They wanted to continue the friendship, the fellowship with him that they'd had when he was physically with them. What else did they know? Well, by this point, they know they're they're between a rock and a hard place. There are forces now standing against them. And they're going to need God's help. And so they pray. I think probably one of the reasons these guys prayed as naturally as they did is because they'd been with Jesus. Their leaders had been with Jesus. They'd seen him pray. They'd they'd been part of a group where they'd noticed that he would take himself off to go and be with his father and to pray. They'd, They'd seen Jesus pray before them and they were so struck by it and so moved by it that they came to him and they said, Lord, teach us to pray like that too. They'd been with Jesus at the end when he was in the garden at Gethsemane, the biggest struggle of his life, and it was a prayer where he expressed it all to his father, or where he hung on the cross, and even in the moment where he felt his father's rejection, he couldn't stop but talk to his father and to pray. That's how it is for Jesus' followers back then. They pray. And that's how it will be today when God's Spirit makes himself more and more and more at home among us. The Spirit-filled church prays because it knows who's boss. Let's pray just now. Father God, when we read this passage um, and we observe the life of some of your earliest followers, we're struck by two things, their courage to stand in the face of their culture and their prayerfulness. 
Lord, we wish we had their courage and we wish we were at much at ease at prayer. Lord, help us not to strive after those things, to want to be more courageous or more prayerful. Help us just to be more open to you, to get over our fears, our nervousness, our ongoing sinfulness, to say that we simply want more of your presence in us. Our courage will come. Our prayers will grow. But only when you're with us and in us. Holy Spirit, would you fall on us just now? Would you increase in us this week? Amen.